I want to address and begin to answer the following question this morning. How does God grow a healthy church? How does God grow a healthy church? There's something important in that statement, and there's an assumption that's based in in the biblical truths that God grows the church, okay? And I want to make that very clear, that God grows the church. So how does God grow a healthy church? Would you go with me to Acts chapter 2 this morning? Let's go together to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, we're going to look at this morning, actually begin to look at this morning. And this is a wonderful illustration. These verses we have in Acts chapter 2 are a wonderful illustration of how God grows a healthy church. And the passage we're going to be reading this morning immediately follows Peter's first sermon to the church in its infancy. Peter's sermon had had done its work. Peter's sermon had pierced the heart of those who listened just as the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to do when it's preached, is supposed to pierce the heart. And it obviously does because of what we see beginning in verse 37. This is how the people responded to the preaching of the Word. Acts chapter 2, I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, beginning with verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. In the last sentence, in verse 47, I want you to note because what follows is the key phrase to the statement to the question I gave you at the beginning. This validates our question. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. When I ask the question, how does God grow a healthy church? How does God grow a healthy church? Often, the first thought of many is that surely 
more people means that the church is healthy and growing. You ever think that? Like, I see more people. Woohoo! Right? More people. We must be growing. Careful. More people doesn't necessarily mean that the church is healthy. Because the healthy growth of a church is based on whether it's growing spiritually, not numerically. Do you understand that God's ruler for the growth of the church does not measure by the number of people, but it measures by the spirituality, the depth of spirituality of the people who are there? You realize that? I want to caution you with that because I find it it's a natural inclination of my own heart to see more people and go, woohoo, <laughs> more people. Wait a minute. Are they spiritual? Are they growing? They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be mature. But are they growing up? Right? There certainly can be, so don't misunderstand me here, there certainly can be both numbers and health. Okay? There can be great numbers and health. We see it in Acts chapter 2. But there can be great numbers and no health, no spiritual health. And so the standard for growth of the growth of God's church is not how many do we have, but how many do we have who are spiritually healthy. And that's God's standard. When we read passages like the ones that we find here in Acts chapter 2, we discover that God grows His church. Now, that does not remove our responsibility to serve and work for growth in the church. We are to work toward growing God's church, but God causes the growth. We can't manufacture the growth. We can't create the growth ourselves. We can work toward it. And I'm going to show you some steps that we need to take as a church to work toward growth. And we have a part in growing God's church, but God causes the growth, not us. So the question, the next question, logical question would be, so, all right, how are we to be a part of God's plan? How are we to be a part of what God causes? How are we to be a part of growing a healthy church? Now, having just completed our series of studies in Colossians, this is a a good opportunity for us to change gears slightly and to address some important issues that face us as a church. Really, these issues face any church who wants to be a healthy church, wants to be a church that grows God's way. Our deacons and I have discussed many times in our meetings how, how we must be certain as a leadership to direct the steps of God's church deeper into the truths of God's Word. And if we're to experience the kind of growth as a church that is healthy growth, growth that honors God, we must continually turn God's people back to the Word, the foundation of health, spiritual health and growth. And that's why we spend most of our time studying God's Word and why, as I I came here five years ago, I began preaching through books of the Bible. And I have committed myself to preaching book by book through God's Word, verse by verse, because for one thing, that's how God wrote His Word. He wrote it in books and and assembled those books into a book. And so I want to study book by book through God's Word, verse by verse. Occasionally, like we're going to do now and and next week, Lord willing, we're going to step aside from going through a book 
and come to a passage that speaks specifically to some issues that we need to address as a church. I won't do that very often because as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to another book. But it it happens that we're coming back to a place that we've studied before, actually. We're coming back to Acts chapter 2. And if you were with us for our study in Acts, which was a long one, we studied through the book of Acts. So we're actually coming back to a place where we've studied before. But but a helpful passage, a timely reminder for us about how God grows a healthy church and how can we make sure we're part of his plan. How can we make sure that we're in the center of what he is causing to grow? As we noted last week, God's people only mature spiritually by their regular feeding on God's Word. That's a foundational truth for the church. We had better be feeding on and maturing in God's Word. Otherwise, we will not be a healthy church. And whatever growth we think we see will not be God-honoring growth if we're not healthy spiritually. The challenge our last time together as we concluded our study of Colossians in chapter 4 was based on Paul's emphasis to the church that they read the letter. Right? Remember last week when I said, read the letter. And you and I ought to read the letter, right? Read God's letter to us, the book that He has given us and blessed us with, and how He's shown us His grace and mercy in giving us His Word to read. We talked about that last week. Paul said, read the letter. And then you take your letter that you're reading in the public and teaching and preaching from, and challenging the people to go out and live, you take that letter and you send it to the next church and you get their letter and you read that letter and you teach and preach that letter and you tell the people that they had better live that letter too. No, this is God's Word. This is God's Word. We're we're very privileged to have it in printed form before us. We have no excuse, do we? Read the letter. And that's what we ought to be doing as a church. They were to read the letter. We're to read the letter. And the desire of our leadership is that you read the letter, right? That you read the book and that we read the book and we read the letter and we live it and order God's church by it and become a part of what God is doing in our midst because we believe in and we stand on the letter, the book, God's Word. The desire of our leadership is that this church grow. We want to see, we want to see numerical growth. We do. Don't misunderstand when I say, be careful that you don't think that the standard for numerical, you know, for growth is numbers. We want to see more people. We want to see more people who have committed themselves to, to living for Jesus Christ, who have confessed their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and want to join this work and be a part of what God is doing in this community through our faithfulness, through our obedience to His Word. We want to see more people, absolutely. But we, we always stop and remind ourselves, and I take the, 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 the time often with our leadership to remind them, our focus ought to be, make sure that we're remembering that our focus is spiritual growth. Is the spiritual growth there? Because no matter how many people we bring in, if we're not growing them spiritually, this is not God out in growth. So recently, when our deacons and trustees met, I challenged them that to be a healthy church that grows God's way, we, we've got to first emphasize the importance of, of something else that comes from God's Word, and that's godly leadership. It begins at the top of the church, and, and, and I mean when I say top, I mean the heaviest responsibility. That we have a high responsibility. We, have a, we, have a, we are going to be held accountable to God for whether or not we lead scripturally or not. And so God expects for us to be godly leaders, and He expects us to be 
grooming and growing godly leaders. Our last time together in our last deacons and trustees meeting, I challenged our men, make sure that we pray, pray with me, lead with me, that we would challenge and encourage, first of all, men in families to be godly men. And men to be men in their families means that they love and they lead like Jesus did. And they love their families and they sacrifice for their families for God's sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, leading the way God led. And so as a church, we always want to make sure we begin with the way God ordered things. And he put men and families to lead scripturally, godly lives, lovingly sacrificing themselves for their family, spiritually leading. And then grooming those men who are leading their families in a way that's Christ-honoring to also lead God's church. And I challenged our men that we need to pray that way, that we need to pray for more godly leadership. Not that we don't have godly leadership. We do. And I'm so thankful for the men that God has given us. But we need more. We always need more. You can't have too many godly leaders in the church, right? And you can't have too many godly people in a family. The same is true in the church family. And so we want to lead and and encourage and spur on men to grow spiritually, to lead their families spiritually. They need to set the standard for righteousness in their families and in God's church. My emphasis then, as we met together a couple of weeks ago, was that we must have our priorities in order. Like I mentioned last week, we, we've got to make sure that we make the main thing, the main thing, the centering on God's truths, leading as God's leaders, as He commanded us to, as He expects us to, and He, he will hold us accountable to if we do not lead. And then preparing others to lead and encouraging them to lead, to hold them accountable, to lead in their families as, as godly men and leaders in their families, and then to give them opportunity to lead God's church and hold them accountable to lead as godly men in God's church. I emphasized in our meeting with the men that we must never put the physical aspects of this ministry ahead of the spiritual aspects of this ministry. And what I mean is that we need to be careful that we don't put the building and the property and some of the activities and things that we do ahead of the spiritual growth of the church. And I said that because we were getting ready to discuss what God may have for us in the future. And so to put things into perspective, we need to make sure that that spirituality, godliness in the lives of men and women and children is primary. And whether or not we see more people or whether or not we must build buildings or things to contain the ministries that, that grow from this ministry is beside the point if we don't have spiritual growth. And so I emphasize then that we've, we must never put the physical aspects of the church like erecting buildings and improving the property and as if building and improving facilities were growth, we should never put that ahead of God's plan for growing the church. Never. It's clear in God's word that God's God's way of growing the church is His way and not our way. And He chooses to do so through the obedience of His children. He requires that we be obedient. And when we're obedient, He brings growth. And primarily, it's spiritual growth. But an interesting thing happens when God's people begin to grow spiritually. 
You know what it does is it, it leaves this place, these four walls, and it goes out to this community and it starts spreading. And people tell their neighbors about Jesus Christ and people get converted and, and God's church begins to grow numerically. And so God's ways are best, aren't they? And He expects us to be obedient. His way of growing the church is through not our schemes or plans, but it's through our obedience. It's our obedience to God's Word that's primary. So what does God expect from us? Again, the question, what does God expect from us? What are we expected by God to do to be a part of growing His church in a a way that's healthy? What does obedience look like? Well, beginning this morning, I, I want to take you into a brief series before we start a new series of studies in another precious book of God's Word. I want to show you the the obedience that God requires of His children to be a healthy church. What does God require of us? And I want to show you that beginning today and, Lord willing, next Sunday as well. I see four steps in Acts chapter 2 that God uses to grow a healthy church. And this is where we'll be today and next week taking a look at the steps of obedience God's children must take to be involved in God's plan for growing His church. I'm going to give you those four steps today. We're only going to talk about the first one, but I want to give you those four steps so you know where we're going. Four steps that we'll, that we'll look at. One of them today and the other three next week. These four steps form the acrostic, the word grow. Grow. G-R-O-W. And here they are. God grows His church when His people are. I'm going to give you these. You can write them down if you like to help you remember and God grows His church when His people are gathered. When His people are gathered, we're going to talk about that today and help you understand from, from this passage what that means. Rejoicing, obeying, and walking. God grows His church when His people are gathered together, rejoicing together, obeying His Word, and walking with Christ. Grow. Grow, gathered, rejoicing, obeying, walking. I want to just talk about the G today in grow. Gathered. God grows a healthy church when His people are gathered. Now what in the world do I mean by that? Well, I see six marks of the gathering of God's children in in our passage this morning. And the first mark of the gathering of God's children is when they are saved. Saved. I encourage you to write these down. Not that you don't know these already, but just as just helpful reminders for you of what God expects from us if we're to be a part of a of a growing, healthy church. Six marks of the gathering of God's children that I see in this passage, and the first one is that that God gathers together people who are saved. And God saves people so that He can gather them together to do the work of the gospel. Verse 37 indicates that when the people heard the gospel that Peter preached, they were, it says, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And that is a great question, isn't it? What do we do? What a wonderful opportunity to lead someone to Christ. What do we do? And that Peter did. Verse 38, he says, and Peter said to them, here's what you need to do. Repent. You need to repent. And you need to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Repent, confess your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and be baptized. God does a wonderful thing when you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. He gives you His Holy Spirit also, and He reminds them and tells them that. In verse 47, He says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right? Being gathered as a part of God's church means that you must be saved. God grows His church by saving sinners. That's what happens when people get convicted of their sin and turn and say, what do I have to do? Now that I've heard this truth, I feel conviction. I need to do something. What do I do? They get saved. They confess their sin. They repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what was happening here in Acts chapter 2. People were being saved. They were repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. You know that without the gathering of individuals saved by by God's grace, that there is no church? You realize that? You know, you realize that there are churches all over this globe that call themselves churches that don't have people who are saved? And so they aren't a church. Without those gathered together who are saved because they trusted in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior, there's no church. And to be a part of the gathering of God's people, you must be saved. Now that's not to say that unbelievers aren't welcome in our midst. They are welcome. Obviously that was the case in the early church. There were unbelievers in their midst that needed Christ. We we welcome unbelievers. I hope you will invite your unbelieving neighbors and friends and family members to come and and join us. Because we don't want them to stay unbelievers for very long, right? We want them to come and join us because we want to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so they will be pierced to the heart, right? With God's Word. And so they'll say, what must I do? Right? So we welcome unbelievers as they did in Acts chapter 2. But we don't want them to stay that way for very long, right? I have to ask a question here. Have you been saved? You don't mind me asking, do you? Believers who are here, you don't mind me saying that, do you? Are you saved? Have you understood what Jesus Christ has done for you? You realize, don't you? Maybe you've never realized it. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe maybe you've never realized that Jesus Christ died for you because you're a sinner. I want you to know that you're not alone though because this whole room, this room is filled with sinners whom Jesus Christ died for. All have sinned, says Romans 3.23. And to make the point, it says again, all fall short of God's glory. Have you confessed? Have you confessed to God your sin that you are a sinner? Have you admitted it? Some people don't want to admit that they're sinners. They are, whether they want to admit it or not. They don't want to. If you come to the point where you said, I am a sinner. I am separated from God. I do need to trust Christ. I do trust that Jesus died for me. And so have you confessed to God in prayer, which is something you can do right now, right in the quiet where you sit, and confess that, yes, I am a sinner, and I confess that I don't deserve Jesus, but I accept Jesus as my Savior because He died for me and I believe and Jesus will save you.
Have you been saved? If you haven't, I urge you to trust Christ today. I hope you're all believers today. I hope you're all here. Everyone here is a believer, but I don't ever want to assume that. And as a matter of fact, I challenge people who say that they're believers to, to challenge themselves and say, have I confessed my sin and asked Jesus to save me from my sin? Or am I depending on something my mom did for me or my dad did for me when I was a kid or the fact that they took me to church or the fact that my grandparents took me to church? Or am I de- de- depending on my, my good works or the fact that I've been coming to church forever? Am I depending on my church membership? You know, you can be a believer today if you'll trust in Christ today. I'd love to talk to you if you don't know Christ and you're confused and you want to ask questions. I want to talk to you whether you're confused or not. If you trust Christ today, I want you to tell me. If you need to know more, I'd love to have you talk to me. I know that my wife Carolyn would love to talk to you if you're a lady. I know that our leaders and their wives would love to speak with you if you'd like to get one of them and say, I I want to know how to be a believer, how to be a Christian. God grows His church by gathering in those who are saved. He saves people, and then He brings them into His fold, the church. The second mark of the gathering of God's children and a mark of a healthy church is when believers are baptized. When they're baptized. We saw it in verse 38. Peter said that they must repent and be baptized. And in verse 41 it says, So those who received his word, that is, those who were saved, that's what that means there, is those who received his word, those who believed, those who were saved, were baptized. And and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we all said, woohoo, right? That's exciting. That's exciting, isn't it? 3,000, can you imagine that? 3,000 souls added to the church in one day. And it didn't stop there. Part of being gathered as God's children is obediently passing through the waters of baptism. Did you know that? But note that God's word does not... I want you to be very careful about this because if you read this passage loosely and and, and without caution, you might think that baptism and salvation are the same. Part of being gathered as God's children is, is obediently passing through the waters of baptism. But note that God's word does not equate baptism with salvation. Baptism does not save you. It is a public declaration of your repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Growing up, and I've told you this before, you're probably getting tired of hearing me saying it. Growing up, always this little phrase, and some of you grew up with the same phrase. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. An inward change that's already taken place. Okay. Out, baptism is... An expression, it's a public testimony. When you pass through the waters of baptism, you are baptized, you are publicly saying, I want everybody to know. I'm a sinner who's confessed my sin and believed in Jesus Christ for saving. And He has saved me. And He's working in me. And I want you to know that. So I'm going to publicly go through the waters of baptism because that's what God's Word tells me to do. And I want to obey. So it's not salvation, just in case you were thinking that it was. I want you to be careful with that. To obediently enter the waters of baptism, as did these new believers, is to make a, a public profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and in nothing else. Not in your good works. Not in your Sunday school attendance or whatever it is. Not in the fact that your mother took you to church all your life. 
but in the saving and finished work of Jesus Christ. And you pass through the waters of baptism to say, that's me. I believe in Jesus Christ. He saved me from my sin. I want to publicly testify to that. And let me urge you, if you've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior and have not been baptized, I I want to challenge you and encourage you to follow through on that. Make a public profession of your faith by being baptized. And if you want to be baptized, speak to me. Don't be embarrassed. Sometimes people aren't, aren't baptized for many years and later in life realize, you know, I've never been baptized. I want to follow through. Don't be embarrassed about that. We're only going to be thrilled that you get baptized and follow through the waters of baptism and obedience to Jesus. third mark of, of the gathering of God's children and a mark of a healthy church is when believers join. When they join. When believers join the fellowship of believers. You can be a believer and not join the fellowship, which is not good for you, okay? God intended for you to join the local fellowship and be a part of the growing and healthy local church. And when believers join the fellowship of believers, we call that, we call that membership. Now, verse 41 indicates that there were record-keeping going on. There's, there's some record-keeping going on here because obviously they kept track of how many joined the church or became a part of the fellowship, right? It says that, did you see a number there? 3,000 souls were added, to, added that day to the church. They were adding to the church. That tells me that there was already a number established. They were adding to the church those who were being saved. And and later in Acts, we see more adding to the church going on, and they're keeping track of the people. Now, some say, why join the church? Why do I have to join the church? You don't have to join the church, but it is for your good that you join a local fellowship of believers. The fact that there are persons given to the church for the leadership and discipline of God's children necessitates that there be a, a formal commitment to the corporate life of the church and that there be a mutual accountability of God's children. You see, look at it this way. What do you think my children would be like if they didn't have parents? I mean, they're not angels. They are not angels. But I'm imagining that they'd be even worse than they are now. They're not that bad. But they would, you know, right? I mean, think about how you and I would drive Think about how we drive anyway, but think about how we would drive if there were no laws and law keepers, right? And I drove down to Flint and back yesterday, and um, not doesn't make me tired driving. I think it's having your nerves on edge the whole time that makes you tired. Just think about what our world would be like without any laws or law keepers. And God's church is designed for that. That people who will come together and say, I want to be a part of what God is doing in this fellowship. And I'm going to, because God tells me to, I'm going to submit myself and put myself under the authority of those that God has placed in leadership in the local church. Because I know my own heart and I know that I'm a sinner still. Even though I've believed in Jesus Christ, I know I'm still prone to sin. And and there may be a day when I run from God and I want the church to come after me and come and get me and shake me by the shoulders and say, you need to repent of that sin in your life, you know? And it's very hard for the church to do that if you won't submit yourself to the authority of the church. I hope we never need to do that. But I'm committed to church discipline. 
something nobody likes to talk about. And some people believe that no church ever really practices church discipline. I hate the idea of having to practice church discipline, but we must be committed to chasing down, running after, pursuing those who are running from God, who have put themselves under the authority of the church, because they are our responsibility to at least go to them and confront them in their sin, making sure that we get the log out of our own eyes first, right? And saying, there's something in your life that doesn't square with God's Word, and I'm going to challenge you on this because I love you. You might say you hate me because I'm challenging you, and that's okay because I'm God's servant and I want to obey God's Word. And I want you to come back to the fold. I want you to come back under the umbrella of protection that God has placed over His church. Is church membership important? It is. Our church constitution contains something we call a covenant. A covenant that those who wish to be a part of the fellowship as members must commit to uphold. A covenant is a very serious thing, you know? The uh, the gentleman who was speaking yesterday at the conference used the illustration I thought was interesting of the definition of marriage from a dictionary. What was that? From the early 1900s or late 1800s? I can't remember. And the definition was clearly that... What's that? 1920. I know it's like early 1900s or something like that or late 1800s. The definition of marriage in that dictionary was very clearly defined like the Bible defines it as between a man and a woman for life. Right? And then he showed the current definition, or the one from the 80s, which weakened it and took out the for life part. And now, if you look around, you don't have to look too far to find that there's all kinds of definitions for marriage these days. And that's because people don't take a word like covenant seriously. That God joins two people together for life, and He intended for them to stay together for life. And when we separate those two things, that's not part of his plan. And so we use a word like covenant in marriage, and we use a word like covenant in church membership because there are some biblical standards that God has given us in his word, and he expects to us to adhere to these for life. And the covenant is a kind of a serious word for us as a church. I, we're going to have a membership one-on-one class here soon, and I'm going to go through the covenant and say, you know, look, look the covenant, this is a serious thing. We expect you to commit to this. And and I want you to understand that this is not man's standards. This is not a legalistic list of rules. But what it does do, what our covenant does do, is points back to God's word and what God says, word for word. God's word says this, so we expect that you will obey this. And if you don't obey this, we expect that you'll submit to the authority that God has given us to come and get you and help you come back and repent. Our church covenant contains a statement Several statements. The covenant is really an important statement of mutual commitment that makes it very clear what's expected of those who will commit to membership in this body of believers. And when you join the church, you agree to abide by God's word as the standard. And the covenant just reminds us of what God's word says in some key areas. Some of those things that the covenant contains, it contains statements that point to some of our responsibilities, such as getting along. That's important. Okay, as God's family, we ought to get along. And the covenant reminds us that the Bible says some things about how we ought to get along. And so we expect you to commit to that 
And people sitting in your midst who have become a part of this membership have looked at that covenant and said, I'm committing to getting along with my brothers and sisters in Christ. You've made a commitment. That's a serious thing. You've covenanted based on what God's word says that we're going to get along. It also contains statements that indicate things like the the fact that we will faithfully attend and, and worship together and put ourselves under the teaching and preaching of the word together on a regular basis as much as our, as our, as our health allows. Sometimes I understand that people in some difficult health situations can't be here for every service. I also understand that people have a life and they have to work and you can't be here for every service, but I also believe that God expects you to be a part of this fellowship. And when we join together as a body of believers and say, I'm going to be a part of this church and I covenant to, to keep these standards, I'm going to make every effort I can to be together when we're together as often as I can. It also contains statements that have to do with our responsibility to uh, to work in the church and be a part of serving in the church and that we will take part and we will work together. That's part of getting along. My kids don't get along very well when some people aren't doing their share, you know. And they go, but he's not, or, well, never she's not because Christy's perfect, but, <laughs> but, but he's not or she's not, but, you know. God's family doesn't get along too well when some of us aren't doing our share. And what I mean by that is that God has specifically gifted each and every one of us to be a part of the local church and to do our part. And it'd be, it'd be like taking away a limb or two from a healthy person and to watch how, how much they would struggle to get along. God's church operates like that at times because they're missing some limbs. They're missing some important appendages that God intended them for to be to be a part of the work of the church. A mark of a healthy church is is one where individuals who have been adopted as God's children into God's family identify with the local church. The body of Christ is what God calls the church. And He expects them to identify in a way that makes them accountable, afforded by that covenant relationship, that covenant membership that we partake in. And as with baptism, and as with salvation, if you are a follower of Christ and you have not identified with the body of Christ through membership, I challenge you to take this next step in your walk with Christ. I said it a few moments ago, membership 101 class we're forming right now. If you want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, we'd like you to be a part of that membership 101 class. If you aren't a member and you have been baptized, we want you to be a part of that class. Because membership and baptism go hand in hand. We want you to go through the membership 101 class so you'll understand what we believe, why we believe, what we expect from you, what you should expect from us. And that we want to encourage you to pass through the waters of baptism and join the church. And if you've already been baptized, we want you to be a part of that class too and we want you to join the church. Be a part of what God wants to do in this fellowship. Raising us up as a body of believers, the body of Christ in this community, getting along obeying God's Word, working together, using the gifts that He has gifted us with. I encourage you, please speak to me about that. Membership 101 class, I'd love to have more folks be a part of that if you'd like. A fourth mark of the gathering of God's children and a mark of a healthy church is when believers fellowship. When they fellowship, the fellowship of the early church can be seen in their devotion to and their commitment to the apostles' teaching says verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And true fellowship, indicated here, true fellowship goes beyond having a time when we get together and chat and eat. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that like we're going to do tonight. We're going to have a fellowship. We call it a koinonia. But really, that should just be the starter for our, for our true koinonia, our true fellowship. It's okay to get together, to chat and eat, but that should just kind of spur us on to more. That's just part of fellowship. Verse 44 goes further in defining this idea of fellowship for us by saying that all who believed were together and had all things in common, which is to say they were of one heart and mind. They cared for one another. They looked out for each other. They encouraged one another. They built one another up. And verse 42 indicates that they prayed for one another, right? Oh, how critical it is that we pray for and encourage one another. I I encourage you, if you don't have a church directory, there's a violet colored, is that violet or whatever color that is out there? Um, Color name challenged. But that little booklet out there that's a church directory that has, even though they're small, and I know you don't like your pictures in there, that's okay, just to help us remember what you look like. Not Not that they're perfect. We know you're all beautiful, and those pictures would look a lot better if they were full spread 8 by 10s But... Get the church directory and pray for each other. Get the church directory and encourage one another as often as possible. Get the church directory especially and pray through. I would encourage you to take a page a day and just go through and pray for the people. Some some people you're going to know their needs. Others you're not, not going to know their needs specifically, but pray for them anyway. Pray for one another. Take opportunity to call. You know, I encourage you, Wednesday nights we get together and we start out before we pray, we praise we talk about what God is doing and how He's answered our prayers for, for two reasons. We need to hear it. I need to hear what God is doing in you. You need to hear what God is doing in me. And you need to say it. You need to praise God. And the, the act of you saying the good things that God is doing to you will, will bring them back to your mind when you get low and you go, God has done nothing for me lately. Oh, wait a minute. He has done something for me. And I would encourage you to use the church directory to pick up the phone and call a friend and say, just, just guess what God just did. You know? And praise God and thank God and tell one another the blessings that He is blessing you with. Those who fellowship as God's people spend time together for the mutual cause of having one heart and mind and brotherly love toward one another and devotion to one another. And I want you to note that that statement that they had all things in common I want you to be careful here because it does not mean a communism kind of lifestyle or or it does not mean that they brought everything together that everyone owned, threw it into a big pile, and then one for you, one for me, one for you. That's not what that means. Note that that statement that that all things in common does not mean that they threw everything into a big pile and took equal shares. It does mean that they cared deeply for people who had genuine needs. And they cared for one another. And some people say, you know what? God has been a blessing to me. And I see so-and-so has a genuine need. I'm going to help with that. Verse 46 says it this way. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They praised God for His goodness. And out of the gratitude of their hearts, they also gave And those who fellowship as God's people spend time together for the cause of mutual care and building up of one another and for the purpose of praying for and encouraging one another. 
And that means that fellowship just begins here, doesn't it? It just starts inside these four walls, but it had better not stop here when we leave. We should fellowship with one another. Use the phone. Use the email. Use the opportunity to have someone to your home and spend time encouraging other believers in Christ. Which points to a fifth mark of the gathering of God's children. A mark of a healthy church is when believers serve. When they serve. We see it throughout this passage. Peter served the church by teaching and preaching and baptizing and leading. Others served in the organization of the distribution of those things that were brought for those in need. Others served by opening their homes to others for fellowship. God grows a healthy church through the faithful service of His saints. He wants His saints whom He has gifted, and He's gifted us some very differently. But that's intentional. God is intentional in that. And He expects us to use the diversity of gifts to come together to help grow His church in a way that's healthy. And one of the ways we're gathered as God's children is when we are serving together. Serving in God's church. For some, serving means preparing meals for those in need. For some, serving means teaching a Sunday school class. For some, serving means a role in leadership, in giving direction to the church. For some, it means organizing or planning or cleaning or fixing or hospitality. For all of God's children, it means they give of themselves to the work of the church. I was reminded of this in a very subtle way yesterday. I love how God reminds me, and for some reason I think of peculiar things like this, but the guys and I gathered yesterday morning at 6.15 in the morning, and I was up way before that, a whole hour before that. We Don't you feel sorry for me? We were out here in a parking lot, and there was still snow in the lot, and I thought the, the fellow who comes and plows our lot may come with our cars here. And so I asked, I think Jerry Mills was the first guy to come in. I said, would you mind going up and parking with your nose like up to the trees and then back toward the back of the lot? That way he can plow out just in case he comes while we're gone. I'm thinking about these crazy details, you know, because last year we came back and we had to shovel some of the spaces out, I think. Um, and Jerry came back and said, I was going to do that, but I thought it would be better to park this other way. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's way better. Yeah, thank you. I didn't think of that. I didn't think of parking the other way in a long line. You know, it's like a very small detail, but it re- I was thinking later in the day, thank you, Lord, for that subtle reminder about how God gifts us all differently. You know, some of us are more intelligent than others. Thank, thank, thank the Lord for Jerry, who's more intelligent than I am, says, no, no, it'd be better to park the Lord. It's like, fine, that's great. Thank, thank the Lord for that subtle reminder that we're all different, aren't we? And does God use us? Absolutely He does. Does He want to use us? Absolutely He does. You must be willing to use what God has gifted you with. And I'm so thankful for for people like that who God gifts and then convicts to come and serve and, and do so joyfully. For all of God's children, it means giving of themselves to the work of the church for the glory of God. God uses the diversity of gifts in His church to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in something as minuscule it might seem to you as how we arrange the car so we can get the lot cleared so that you can find a place to park Sunday morning. God uses all of these collectively to advance the cause of Christ to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And giving of oneself, one's time and talent and gifting leads to a sixth mark of the gathering of God's children, a mark of a healthy church is when believers give. mark of a healthy church is when believers give. Believers who serve give first of themselves, as we just noted, they serve. 
And God has gifted every believer for service, but God also calls his children to give of the resources with which he has blessed them. And God has blessed us, hasn't he? Verse 45 reminds us that these new believers were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, why did they do that? Well, I think, and I'm pretty certain that it's because, like you and me, when God convicts us and when we, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and He begins to grow us in Christ's likeness, we, we begin to realize how much God has given us. Number one, and how much He's given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is an immeasurable gift. And then, as we begin to look at all we have, we change from one mindset, which is, look at all my stuff. This is my stuff. Don't touch it. And then we realize, wait a minute. God gave this to me. God gave this to me to take care of and to manage and to be a good steward of, but this is actually His. And so, if He wants to take something that's His then I shouldn't miss it. I might miss it a little, but I understand it's His. And if He wants to give me more of what's His to manage for Him, I want to be a good steward. And I think what happened in the hearts and minds of these new believers is that they began to realize, wait a minute, this is not my stuff, it's God's stuff. And He wants me to use it for His glory. And I see somebody who has a need, who's genuinely trying to serve the Lord, and they have a need, I'm going to help them. So God softened their hearts. And that's what happens when we begin to serve and to give of what he's gifted us with. And then we begin to willingly and cheerfully give. That's why we try to remind you, be cheerful givers, which which maybe I should be more explicit about that. When, when we say be cheerful givers, that means you don't give if you can't give cheerfully. Because, see, we don't need, and when I say we, I mean, I should say God. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need you to give begrudgingly. All right, here's the, you know. He wants you to do so, so so that you can advance the cause of Christ with what He has gifted you to manage for Him in a way that's Christ-honoring. And so He says, be cheerful about your giving, which means be thoughtful and be happy to do so. And if you can't do so happily, maybe there's something else in your heart that you need to fix before you give. Because you're not thankful for the most basic of things, which is your salvation and the generous things that God has blessed you with. Verse 45 reminds us that these new believers were selling their possessions. And how they do that? I think God changed their hearts. I know, I know He did. He changed their minds because He, Peter reminds them, you'll get the Holy Spirit. Right? And what happens when you get the Holy Spirit? Now you got a piece of Jesus living in you, which is not like the old nature at all. That says, mine, 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 mine. And the new nature says, wait, I need to give and I need to share. And I, there's somebody in need. I'm going to help them. Because that would honor Christ. Over and over and over in the New Testament, we see the call for believers to be generous givers. Joyful giving to the ministry of the gospel of Christ is something God calls His people to do joyfully. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 reminds us of the words of Christ who taught that there is more blessing in giving than in receiving. I think we forget that sometimes, don't we? And often believers are confused about their giving and whether the Bible requires they give 10% of their income or whether they must give more. You ever hear anybody say that? Do I have to give 10%? 
Is that a requirement? Or do I have to give more than 10%? I like what D.A. Carson writes, theologian from uh, Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School. Dr. D.A. Carson notes two things to be aware of when we give. He says, number one, beware of pride. There is always a great spiritual danger, he says, in thinking that if in some area we have satisfied a specific concrete demand, we have done everything that God requires. 10% is a lot of money to some folks. To others, it's not very much. It's that, isn't that one of the lessons, he says, to be learned from Jesus' comments about the widow's might? To suppose that God demands 10% and nothing more can itself foster a remarkably independent and idolatrous attitude as if saying, quote, this, is, this, is, uh, this bit is for God and the rest of mine is for me. The rest of, you know, this is for God and the rest is mine and I'll do with whatever I want. He goes on to say, likewise, if you choose to give more than 10%, you may become inebriated from the contemplation of your own generosity. Caution both ways, right? Number two, he says, remember why you are giving. A strictly legal perspective on giving soon runs into a plethora of complicated debates. Hmm, let's see. Is this 10% of gross income or of net? How does this play out in a, in a country, he says, where a progressive income tax system rises to, to 90% of income? If we choose to tithe from our net income or are we talking take-home pay? Are we including, you know, the, the, the questions are limitless when you begin to think like that. And so I think, I think he's right when he says the question, the question that we're asking is all wrong. How much do I have to give? How much do I have to give is the wrong question. If you're saying, do I have to give 10%, I think it's the wrong question, as does D.A. Carson when he says the right question for God's child should be, how can I manage my affairs so that I can give more? I think that's a great perspective on giving. I think that's the perspective we need to have. How can I arrange what God has blessed me with because these are God's things and he's trusted me with them and I had better be a good steward, otherwise I dishonor God. How can I arrange these things so that I can give more to further advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think if God's people all over this globe started thinking that way, it would revolutionize missions and local churches. God has truly blessed us, hasn't he? And we need to change our way of thinking, don't we? How much do I have to give from how much can I give? God has truly blessed us. God grows a healthy church through His people who are gathering, and I mean gathering by trusting Christ, being saved. Gathering by being baptized. Gathering by joining His local church, the local body of believers, becoming members. Gathering for fellowship, gathering to serve, and gathering to give. And next time, Lord willing, we're going to see how God grows a healthy church through those who are rejoicing together and obeying God's Word and walking faithfully with Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, what precious reminders from Your Word today of Your gifts so liberally showered upon us through Jesus Christ. 
beyond any measurable gift is the gift of salvation. By the grace of God, undeserving we come before you today, Lord. Undeserving we remain. But justified through Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross. Lord, how grateful we must be. Help us to be a people who will gather together as Your believing saints, trusting in Christ, trusting in God's Word. Lord, help us to be obedient pass through the waters of baptism. Help us to be committed to the work that You want to do in the local body of believers and join the fellowship and, and enter under the special fellowship that You bring together when there are those who will commit to serving together and getting along and giving. Lord, help us to fellowship as we ought. Help us to understand what true fellowship is, not just our times here together, but, but elsewhere, outside these four walls, encouraging one another day by day, encouraging one another when, when there's a, a great need often from time to time in our lives for someone to come along and put an arm around us and just be there. Lord, help us to look, look for opportunities to serve. Lord, help us to serve you faithfully. Help us to be aware of and thankful for and ready to use the gifts that you have given us as individuals. And then, Lord, help us to be faithful in our giving. Help us to have generous hearts, willing hearts, who, who willingly arrange our affairs and arrange our finances for your glory so that your will would be done in our hearts, in our families, and in your church. May your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.